ask that you take your Bibles. We're not going to be in Philippians this morning. Please turn to Luke 15. Just a brief departure from our study through the book of Philippians today. Luke chapter 15. We're going to read, beginning in verse 11, what I would say is certainly the longest and most developed, probably the most well-known of all the parables that Jesus told. So these are the words of Jesus in Luke's gospel, beginning in verse 11. We will read all the way through verse 32, the end of the chapter. The parable of the prodigal son, or your Bible might say the parable of the lost son. And again, this is Jesus speaking. We will come back to the context of it in a moment. But first, just the story. Let's read through it, beginning in verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the, in the land. And he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, and had compassion, and he ran, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. 
But as soon as, his, as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. And that's the end of the story, a rather abrupt ending. So all I want to do this morning is make a series of observations. There are ten in all. They'll be relatively brief. There's not other passages to turn to or read from. We'll simply go through them quickly, and if you pay attention, then I think that you'll get the gist of the parable. The first point that I would make is the prompt. The prompt. What prompted this story? To see that, we have to read the first three verses of the chapter. So if you look in the first three verses of Matthew 15, we get the setting for why Jesus would tell such a story. It says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying... Now, he tells two other parables before he gets to this third that we've just read. We'll, we'll briefly cover the other two in a moment. But the prompt is, what leads to the whole thing is, it says, sinners drew near to him to hear him. And I think we get a picture here of Jesus the evangelist. Um, Jesus, the Savior concerned with the lives of the sinners... Now, when it says that the sinners drew near to him, we get some summation of who they are, tax collectors and sinners. This man receives sinners and eats with them, elsewhere identified as the such. These were not sinners in the vein that we might raise our hands and say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, this is, these are not people who might, with the rest of the crowd, raise their hand and say, well, no one is perfect. These are people who the society around them had made a special point of their sin. These are people who were living in their outcast sin. It's not as if they had made a mistake and sought to return or something like that. It, these were folks who had been identified as a different class of people. These were sinners. Now, we have our, our classes of, of sinners in our society, too, uh, don't we? We have uh, the general people who, if you asked about them, they'd say, oh, yeah, he's a good guy, or, yeah, she's a good woman, or, yeah, that's a good person, or that's a good neighbor. And when we say that, we don't mean to say that they're perfect, we understand that nobody's perfect. But what we're saying is, whatever their faults may be, they're not persistent in a way that causes us to look on them and push them out of good society around us. Their, their faults, whatever they might be, perhaps they're hidden, perhaps they're only within the confines of their home, or perhaps they're the kind of faults that society by and large has made peace with, they're the kind of folks that, you know, they don't hurt anybody, but they're okay. They're all right. Um, and then there are other people in society around us who their faults, various addictions, various crimes, various betrayals, their faults are the kind of faults that cause us, 
as a society, I speak not now as Christian people, for this is wrong, but as a society to look on them and say, here lies a different group of people. And on the one hand, here lies the good sinners, and here lies a different group of sinners. Here are the safe sinners for our society. The sinners who don't represent any danger to us. And here are the outcasts, the ones that we don't have fellowship and don't have meeting with. And here are the ones who maintaining fellowship with them is not healthy for society. You know, no good person would be in that group. Something about the message of Jesus, if you think about this, was compelling those people in that group to draw near to him in a way that they were not being compelled to draw near to the other religious speakers at the time. There was something unique in the message of Jesus that drew them to him. And we might ask, what might that be? It could not have been that Jesus was just easier on sin. He wasn't. If you read the Gospels, even Luke's Gospel, where we receive this from, Jesus was not easy on sin at all. He seems to take some sort of purpose in telling anyone who would listen that their sins were actually far worse than society thought they were. Not that their sins were actually not that big of a deal. He looks at the person who would condemn the murderer and says, if you have been unjustly angry with your brother, <laughs> you've murdered him in your heart. He looks at the person who would condemn the adulterer and says, if you've looked after a woman with lust, You've committed adultery in your heart. So Jesus is not attracting sinners by saying that their sin is no big deal. No. But what he's telling sinners, we see throughout the Gospels, is that he actually came to see them saved and restored to fellowship with God. His message that was drawing people near him is that God loves you and that God seeks restoration and fellowship with you in your life. He said, thing, he said things like, you know, all who come to me will have eternal life. <laughs> I wonder if we are so generous with the gospel as Christ was. I think that there's evidence that we are because we have all around the sanctuary this morning, people who come from various categories of outcasts and good society gathered here this morning. And yet I, I think that we should call attention to the evangelistic needs in the community around us. And if you are sitting here today, it is very Christian to say that God loves you that he has gone to great lengths to see you restored to right fellowship with your creator, that he paid a great price to put all of your sin, which is actually far greater than you and I would care to admit, 
behind you eternally. And that the voice of Jesus speaks to us that we come and follow him. So the prompt is this attraction of unsavory characters to Jesus. And then in the next two parables, we see God's sovereignty and salvation. So the second observation, look at how sovereign God is. So when, when Jesus starts to talk about salvation, he does not begin with the prodigal son. If you read just the parable of the prodigal son, you might be tempted to believe incorrectly that God is identical to the father who just sits on his porch and hopes that someone comes home. Because that's the vantage point of the prodigal son. But see the first two parables of chapter 15. Verse 4 says, What what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance, which of course they don't exist. But the point is God is actively seeking out those who are lost. As a shepherd who uh, went out into the wilderness to find the one sheep that got away. The, the, in this parable, the sheep does not happen to wander back home. The shepherd goes out and retrieves the lost sheep. Look at the next one. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In other words, from God's perspective, and and again, this is Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost. From God's perspective, salvation is the pursuit of a loving father towards those who are lost. And when one who is lost is found, (laughs) there is great rejoicing. It is a happy thing. And so we see here the sovereignty of God and salvation. Here's Jesus, a quick summary verse in John 4, 23. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. In the sovereignty of God, there's very little that I can speak to, except I know this is true, that Jesus came to save sinners. And if you hear in any semblance, if you feel in any semblance as God's word is read and proclaimed, the spirit of God internally tugging at your soul, hey, you might be saved. Look, this might be for you. Only a fool would ignore that. You say, oh, that's just the emotional manipulations of a preacher. Maybe a preacher who's simply proclaiming God's word to you. This is not Reggie's message. And I have done precious little to save you. This is God's message. Don't mistake the ambassador for the king. 
if he would call you into fellowship with him, respond. The third observation we see now moving to the parable itself in verse 12 is this request. So we have this story. It says a certain man had two sons. He was evidently a man of some means, some wealth. And here's the request in verse 12 of the younger of the two. It's always the younger of the two in my experience. Sorry, I grew up with a younger brother. What can I say? The younger of the two says, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, just a a brief observation in the request, and then we'll move on. Um, There are no goods that fall to sons while their father lives. What he's asking, what he's demanding is his inheritance as if his father had died. In other words, this is not... Now, we're not given all the backstory, and there probably isn't a backstory. It's just a parable. But implied in the request of the parable is this is a son who is in full rejection of his father. So much so that he feels unburdened to go and demand from the man, give me whatever it is you would give me when you die. The father, perhaps for the sake of the story, complies. So he delivered to them his livelihood. Fourth observation. Notice the idea of the wasted life here. It says in verse 13, Not many days after this, the younger son gathered all together. He took all the possession that he'd been granted and journeyed to a far country. And there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The word wasted, if you were to look it up, is the same word used elsewhere throughout the Gospels for scattered. Scattered. It's the word used when we read the parable of the sower, where the sower is scattering seed. Now in that parable, the sower isn't wasting anything, But the idea of waste here is he's taking the possession given to him by his father and it's a waste in the sense of he's simply scattering it around. He's casting it off indiscriminately. It's not necessarily, I guess, in that regard, a waste in the way that you and I would think of someone wasting their money. Um, Not necessarily, we think someone's wasting their money, you know, if, if they buy something ridiculous or whatever. In this sense, it's a waste because it's taking something precious from a father, a lifetime of half a, of, of, of built possession, and it's simply scattering it around based on want and whimsy. The word prodigal living, the word prodigal means riotous. It's the only place it appears in the Bible, right here. Wild living is what we would call it. He's wasting his life and his possession. In that vein, I will say that God has given uh, each of you a possession. Simply as a benevolent creator to a creation, he has given you your body and your mind and the works of your hand. The Old Testament tells us that the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to the Lord. The cattle, the cows may not be branded with any holy emblem, but they belong to him. People live and die. The possession of the earth is the earth. 
and the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to him. And whatever's in your bank account, whatever's in your closet, whatever's in your safe, it's all dust to dust and ashes to ashes and it all belongs to a benevolent creator. It's all made of the same stuff that everything else in the world is made of and it was spoken to existence by the work of a benevolent God. And I wonder if you shouldn't pause and ask yourself this morning, am I wasting this? Am I scattering it around indiscriminately? Am I wasting my breath? Am I wasting my life? Am I wasting my possession? Here is a man who, seemingly without much thought, without much consideration, does exactly that. Now the fifth observation. A timely or perhaps untimely famine. Notice that verse 14 says, When he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land. Coincidence? It depends on how much sovereignty you want to read into the text, I suppose. When he had wasted the great wealth of his father, he was not allowed, by circumstance it would seem, to simply fall into comfortable living like any other poor person might do. But instead, when he had wasted all of the wealth and possession that he took with him, it was in the sovereignty of God the plan to make him experience his poverty in a particularly excruciating time. Now, um, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. Perhaps you guys didn't grow up with a lot of money either. Maybe you did. I have no word of positive or negative to say about it. But if you're a poor person, there are easier and more difficult times to live as a poor person. Um, when you're a poor person, it's never as easy financially as it is for the rich. And yet at the same time, when things are going well and there's plenty of food, gas prices are cheap, lots of places to go down the street and get jobs, uh, the price of meat and milk and eggs and electricity and all that stuff is reasonable, that's one way to live poor. But when you're a poor person and there's famine and difficulty and natural disaster and inflation, it's an entirely different thing. In the sovereignty of God, a particularly difficult time fell upon this man after he had squandered the possession of his father. I don't see that as coincidence. I think even in this parable, there are hints of God's sovereignty from the previous two parables. A father who would seek and save the lost a heavenly father who would drive drive the stake a little deeper into a wandering son. Sixth observation from verse 17. The obvious insanity of sin. Now here's his solution in verse 15. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of the country. Whether the joining is a hiring or kind of an indentured slavery, both were possibilities. But he joins himself to a foreign agency. He does not, he's not in his father's home or his father's homeland. He's gone abroad to enjoy whatever is permissible there, far away from the homeland of his father. And he joins himself to a citizen there. And he set him into his fields to feed pigs. Hey, got to earn a living somewhere. Joe, you fed your share of pigs, right? Yep. 
It says he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. Now, the feed for the pigs was not a feed that was particularly digestible to the man. So it's saying he was hungry. In other words, this union that he'd made to this foreign you know, hire, this foreign employee, was not very benevolent. And that hard work was required. Manual work was required. And even the bare necessities like food was scarce, which we might expect in a famine. And as he's feeding the pigs, he's taking note that they are eating better than him, which is not a passing observation. Because when you're in a famine and you're hungry and you see a pig eating as much as he wants, (laughs) as freely as he wants, freely provided, it tends to obscure your understanding of your own personal value. You see, in this, you might just see a hungry guy. But what the hungry guy sees is, the world around me values the life of this pig more than it values me. (laughs) We're in a famine. But everybody's going to make sure this pig gets fed because he's worth more to the master than I am. That's not an unreasonable position. There is a a famous bioethicist that... uh, I've mentioned in the past who has made the intellectual argument that in bioethics we ought not consider the life of a toddler inherently more valuable than the life of a pig because a pig can contribute greatly to society whereas a toddler can only leech from society until they reach a later state. Well, this is not much different than that. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, and here's where I make the sixth observation, the obvious insanity of sin. You see the wording there, when he came to himself. It's the idea of when he came to his senses, because he clearly was not thinking rightly. He was behaving insanely. He is the son of a wealthy man. (laughs) He has a standing invitation to return home. He has a father that loved him and did not wish to see him go. And his wasteful living and the pursuit of satisfying his own desires has left him in a near-death situation. (laughs) And seeing, you know, it's almost like the guy on the side of the road that says the end is near. It's as if he has an epiphany. What am I doing? (laughs) I am actually not poor. (laughs) I have a father who has my whole life loved me. Who has called me home. And and it's the insanity. The the, the delusionment of self-provision. When there is an almighty God who both loves you and has gone to great expense to know you and have fellowship with you. What am I doing? (laughs) It says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? (laughs) We should not discount this. This isn't... This is a story, but it's not merely a story. 
There is a depressing, sad, foolhardy frame of mind that people who are wallowing in the difficulty of their life's circumstances are often blinded to see beyond. And the gospel of Jesus Christ draws people to Jesus with the message of real hope. You don't have to live this way. You don't have to die this way. There is a Father who both created and knows you and yet loves you. There is a good God. And he says simply in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, <laughs> you ever do that? You know, you've got a tough conversation coming up and you rehearse it and you rehearse it and this is what I'm going to say and when he says this, this is what I'm going to say back and if he says this, this is what... I mean, he's, he's, he's really planning this out. In the story, he doesn't even get to the second part of his speech. He's going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I have done evil against God. I have done evil against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm, I'm, I'm returning, but I'm not asking to be brought back into any special position. Make me like one of your hired servants. Just give me a job. Let me eat. Let me sleep in peace. Forgive me. Let me know that my, my dad doesn't hate me. Just let me come live with you. In Psalm 84, I'm, I'm reminded from a song that we sing, Better is one day in your courts. And you know we sing that song and it's repetitive, and it's like, well, you know, it's a good message, but it's repetitive. And do we really mean it? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Do we really mean that? And this man meant it. He meant it. That song is from Psalm 84. I'll read Psalm 84 to you. Oh God, behold our shield. This man needed a shield. He was exposed to a hard reality. You need a shield in your life too. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. See, if this next phrase, if you get a sense of this man from this next phrase from Psalm 84, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. I think this man knew something of that in his father. The seventh observation, you see repentance in verses 18 and 19, which we read, I will go to him and I will say, I have sinned. I am not worthy. Please forgive me. Let me be a servant. Repentance. 
For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There is something good about acknowledging your sin before God. And this good sorrow is not to be regretted. It's not the kind of sorrow that fills you with guilt, that burdens you for the rest of your life, that forces you to self-medicate in whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you absorb. Now that's what 2 Corinthians 7.10 means. Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. Christians are not guilt-stricken people who walk around with the weight of the world on our shoulders. Christians are forgiven people who know that what the Lord Jesus said is true. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. That's what this means. This kind of repentance is not to be regretted, but it leads to salvation. And what does Jesus say? I'll give you rest for your soul because my burden is easy. My yoke is light. I'll not labor up all of your sin on your back and make you carry it. You come to me and I will give you rest. I will take it all away. The eighth observation is in verse 20. The heart of God. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Many great songs have been written about this over the years. Several come to mind. Don't worry, I won't sing them to you. But many great songs come to mind about this, and rightfully so, because it speaks to the character of God. This, this is not tangential to the parable. We are meant to see the heart of God, and it is a heart of compassion. It is a heart eager to forgive. Notice the man runs. This is the heart of God. It is the story of John 3.16. A God who loves the world and gives His only Son that the world might believe in Him and not perish but have everlasting life with Him. This is the father who sent his son on a mission that you and I would not dare send our son on to die for his enemies. And this is the mission that's in focus when Jesus requests of his father, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there is not. The righteous man, of which there's only one, Jesus, must die in substitution for the sinner who deserves death. The righteous man must be the perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was qualified to die on the cross in a way that you and I could never be. There might be someone in your life whom you love enough that you would be willing to die if it meant eternity in heaven for them, but you are not qualified. You are a sinner. And the wages of your sin is death. But Jesus was no sinner. When he offers his life, he offers it as a ransom to pay for sinners. 
praise God, that price is acceptable to him. We read about the reconciliation, about the feasting, and then in verse 29, I make the observation that this is just a story. There's a danger in making too much of the parable. Verse 29, the oldest son says, So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. Again, just a story. Because that's not the condition of human beings before an almighty God. Oh, we might feel that it is. We might think that we've never sinned or that we are not deserving of any sort of judgment, that our position with God is secure based on our loyal living. But it's just a story. What God's word has to say in the fullness of salvation is that all we are like sheep who've gone astray. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This story is helpful in many ways, but let's be clear, there is no faithful son. There are only sons and daughters who need forgiveness. And finally, my last observation from verse 32 is salvation and resurrection. Notice the words of the father pleading with his older son to take joy in what's happened instead of be bitter about it. He says, it was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. When we are in rebellion against God, we may be biologically alive. In the physical world, our heart is pumping and our lungs are breathing, neurons are firing, there are things happening in our brain. We walk, we talk, we eat, we do. But we are spiritually dead and separated from God as sinners who are under the judgment of a righteous God and who warns us he will judge. The father sees in here not just a son who came back for a visit, but a son who was dead to him and is alive. And that's worth being happy about, isn't it? I'm glad that we got to baptize Craig today. That's worth being happy about. I'm glad for the baptisms that we have known in our church over many years. It's joyful for me to look at the choir and remember what it was like to sing with like six people instead of the bursting three rows that we have now. It'll probably go back down to ten at some point in time, but but for now it's good was told by my son that he and he's going to join the choir as soon as he hits 7th grade. That was a news to me. I thought, "Wow, that's interesting. I didn't expect that." I said, "We only need one Reggie in the choir so you can have my spot and I can sit down." So there's a coming a day when you might look up here at the choir and see Tucker, Reggie, and Jacob right up there in the front and say, "Oh my word, what has happened to us?" <laughs> Out with the old and in with the new. But these are happy things. These are happy things. These are good things. Um, I read uh, this morning from, uh, just two closing thoughts. I read uh, this morning from um, someone uh, who had shared something on Facebook. It was your sister, Clayton, who's in Florida. There's a hurricane kind of around the Florida area right now. And I read uh, because they projected that the hurricane will not be, you know, 
devastating in Florida. I read um, that um, the National Hurricane Center had made a statement. Now listen to the statement. It says, it cannot be overstated that significant uncertainty remains in Ian's long-range prediction. And what they're saying is to a bunch of people in Florida who are shrugging off this hurricane, it cannot be overstated that you are not out of the woods yet. Just because some graphic on a television screen says this thing is not going to come blow your house up does not mean, you know, plan a barbecue for this weekend, okay? Um, that's what, and that's the National Hurricane Service. Now, why do they say that? Well, because we have this tremendous propensity as human beings to ignore our obvious peril, <laughs> to ignore the danger around us. We are here celebrating life in Jesus Christ, which is great. 400 yards away, there are thousands of dead people buried. We're going to die. Um, as I was preparing for the sermon this morning and trying to be fed myself, I was listening to a sermon from Alistair Begg. I hadn't listened to anything from Alistair Begg. He's a pastor of a church uh, up around the Cleveland area. And I was, as I was listening to it, you know, Alistair Begg is from the United Kingdom, you know, not from England, but the United Kingdom. And so the passing of the queen has been more thought-provoking for him than than it would be for a guy like me who just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, that's sad, and moved on. But he referenced the title of an article from the London Times this past week. And the title of the article was, It's Too Much to Hope That the King Can Save Us from Ourselves. That was the title of the article. It's too much to hope that the king can save us from ourselves. Because no earthly king can. There is no human leader. This is relatable as we approach the election season. There is no human leader or group of human leaders that can save us. Sin has brought about destruction and suffering and it's become ingrained and embedded in who we are, both individually and culturally around us, in ways that we're often very hesitant to be honest about. But there is a king who can save us. And his name is Jesus. And in the vein of Philippians 2, I will remind you that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all those who have placed their faith in him will be saved eternally into right fellowship with God. They will not stand before God as criminals. They will stand before God as adopted sons. That's from Ephesians. They will not bear their own guilt, but by faith will have transferred their guilt to the back of the Lamb of God as in all the Old Testament sacrifices when the sinners would take their hands and place them on the animal that was about ready to be saved and a guilt that was about ready to be slain and a guilt sacrifice was offered. The symbolism of taking the hand of a sinner and putting it on an innocent animal who is about to die foreshadows 
what I would call you to do in Christ if you haven't already. Be a sinner who looks upon Jesus in faith that God accepts this sacrifice and will forgive you. If you don't know that forgiveness, you are still in the insanity of sin. And I hope this morning, like the prodigal son, that you come to yourself soon. Today would be a wonderful day. We'd celebrate today. Don't wait. Move forward at the end of the service. I'll be standing right there. Just wait. If someone else is speaking to me, don't have the faith to stand still and not walk away. And tell me, I've been listening for a while now, or perhaps just this morning. I need to be saved. I, I've come to my senses. I need to be saved. Let's pray together. Father, words cannot adequately express my gratitude for the great patience that you show all those who are living today and that you have extended our lives to this point because of your great love. With great patience, you have suffered with our sin and our rejection of you. And even for those of us who are adopted sons and daughters, you continue by your own power to hold us in fellowship with you, taking our sin and looking towards your son, even as we continue to wrestle in flesh and blood with our own evil. But Father, now as we approach this moment of giving, I pray, Lord, for those who have been sitting, as it were, on a fence, the uncomfortable position that it is, with one foot on one side, of a sinner in rebellion against God and another foot on the other side of someone who recognized the value of what it is that's been offered to them in the person and fellowship of Jesus Christ. Father, with your Holy Spirit, shove them over the fence. Rescue them to safety. Embrace them as the Father who runs down the road to take up his son. Father, we love you. We give to you by faith. Thank you for all that you've given us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.